Friends, I invite you for the last time this fall to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, our our focus will be on verses 8 and 9, the final sermon in this series where we see that we are joyful. Some of us joyful because the series has been rich and a great blessing to us. Some of us joyful that it's finally over. Uh, One way or another, we hope and pray that the joy of salvation will become real to you in these moments. A joy that's deeper than a smile, a joy that's deeper than a giggle, a joy that is poignant, more poignant even than grief, and that the Lord has for us in his word. So let me read to us 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, lover of our souls, we want to live for you And so, Lord, in these moments, I want to preach for you, and I want to listen to you. Would you do a work in my heart and in all of our hearts through your word, that heart and mind might be engaged with the truth that you have for us, that we would be open to the work of your Spirit, so that in this time we would do more than just reflect, do more than just consider, but indeed experience you and worship. Would this time be a continuation of our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So near the end of each year, I make a note of my, my favorite book, the, the book that I've enjoyed most from the previous 12 months. And then I go out and I buy a ton of copies and I give them to our staff as Christmas gifts, uh, along with a bottle of champagne to soften the blow of being inflicted with yet another book that they are supposed to read. And this year, my favorite book of the year is this wee book called Telling the Truth. The gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. Isn't that an interesting title? The gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. Now, you should know that this book doesn't come with the unanimous recommendation even of your pastors. Uh, Ben Wickner, our church planter in Rockville, saw me reading this book and said, I hated that book. It's so artsy, fartsy, kind of just, you know, up in the air. I just didn't enjoy that book at all. And then Bleeding Heart here is like, it's my favorite book of the year, right? (laughs) So telling the truth uh, comes with the hearty recommendation of your senior pastor, but not the unanimous recommendation of all your pastors. Um, But I loved it. I loved it. And in it, um, uh, Frederick Buechner, who, who wrote the book, tells the story of Henry Ward Beecher. Henry Ward Beecher was a 19th century pastor who was famous for his opposition to slavery, famous for his um, reflections and preaching upon the, the love of God, and famous too, of course, for a very public adultery trial. On January 31st, 1872, Beecher traveled to Yale to deliver the inaugural Beecher Lectures on Preaching, which had been established in memory of his late father. And on that day, his his biographer reflects on that day. He had a bad night, Beecher did, not feeling well. Went to his hotel, got his dinner, lay down and took a nap. About two o'clock, He got up and began to shave without having been able to get at any plan of the lecture to be delivered within the hour. Just as he had his face lathered and as he was beginning to sharpen his razor, the whole thing came out of the clouds and dawned on him. He dropped his razor, seized his pencil and dashed off the notes for the lecture. And afterwards, he cut himself badly as he turned the lecture over in his mind. And well, Beecher might have cut himself, for the clouds that his message descended from were dark. The gossip about his relationship with the wife of one of his parishioners had left the whispering stage and was now beginning to appear in print. Compromising letters were being handed around and tearful confessions were being made. People were taking sides and charges were being formulated and a public trial for adultery was just a few months off. And so as Beecher stood there looking into the mirror, as he stood there looking with soap on his face and a razor in hand, he saw conflict. Conflict. A Christian, yes. An abolitionist, yes. A preacher, yes. But also an adulterer, a betrayer, a hypocrite. A glorious mess of flesh and blood, blood that would soon pour from the cut on his face as he stood there trying to understand who he really was. And in many ways, that's been the theme of this series. Attempting to understand who we really are. 
Amidst the glorious mess of our own lives, do you know who are you? A Christian abolitionist, preacher, maybe, maybe not. Adulterer, betrayer, hypocrite, possibly so. Certainly you've been given other names. Names given to you by your parents, by the playground, by your teachers, by your coaches. Names given to you by your employer, by your spouse, by your relatives or your friends. Most powerfully, the names that you have given yourself. Names like beautiful or ugly. Like fat or thin. Strong or weak. Popular or mediocre. Confident or insecure. Successful or disappointing. As you stare into your own mirror, who are you? We've seen this fall that however we might individually answer that question, there's a sense in which this is a new day for us all. A new day, why? A new day because the gospel reshapes our identity. That's really been the controlling idea of this sermon series. The gospel of Jesus Christ reshapes our identity. It gives us new names, it gives us new labels to help us understand who we are in Christ. Not what we have been, but what we are now. What our relationship with him has done to our our self-understanding. And Peter has been our guide, and in these few short verses, we've covered a lot of ground. Ten names, ten labels to help shape our self-understanding. Count them out with me. First of all, we saw that you are beloved. In Christ you are beloved. Jesus took Simon the betrayer and loved him into Peter the apostle. And in the same way, he looks into the depth of your heart. And he looks past the mediocrity and past the ugliness and past the failure. He looks past the sin, the shame, and the guilt. He looks past all the confusion, all the uncertainty, all the fear. And there on your very heart, he sees the word that he himself has inscribed, beloved in Jesus Christ. The gospel begins with the recognition that God loves you. Beloved, yes, but secondly, also chosen. Peter writes to who? To the elect. In this hard and hostile world, you are defined not by how you've been rejected, but by how you've been elected. That God's love, his eternal, unconditional, animating love has been set upon you in Christ. So chosen, yes. Third, also exiled. You see it there, still, still in verse 1. Peter clarifies our status here on earth by calling us exiles, aliens, sojourners. This world is not our home, our citizenship is in heaven. Every single one of us, not just the guy with the accent, is a resident alien here on earth. And as we live as exiles, as these resident aliens, as strangers on this earth, we seek to abstain from sin and live gracious lives as we're empowered by Christ who was ultimately exiled on our behalf. Exiles, yes. Fourth, also dispersed. As exiles living away from our heavenly homeland, yet knowing that one day we will make it there. Christians have been dispersed and and scattered across the face of the globe. And so God has you here at this time and in this 
place for a very specific reason. That together as his redeemed community we might speak and embody the gospel. So that even those we thought were our worst enemies might end up being our best friends with much joy and celebration. Dispersed, yes. Fifth, also blessed. Finally, verse 2. May grace and peace, we read, be multiplied to you. Peter's greeting like no Hallmark card that was ever written. Grace, he says, God's unmerited favor through Christ to those who deserve his wrath creates in us peace, this deep internal rest, wholeness, joy. And both of these things, grace and peace, are to be multiplied. We're to have them in abundance. Believers know that there is something deep and sweet in us that can only be explained by the presence of Jesus. Blessed. Yes. And sixth, born again. Born again. Born again by the gospel. Through the labor through the effort, through the pain, through the blood of another, even Jesus. Your identity no longer lies in the life that you have lived, but in the new life that you've been given. And so you are, your life and nothing else. But not the list of mistakes that you have committed. This new life that you've been born again to now controls the very essence of who you are. Born again, yes, and seventh, hopeful. Hope is not something, of course, that Christians uniquely need, but it is something that Christians uniquely have. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That the gospel has ignited a flame in us that can and will never go out. So hopeful, yes, but also eighth, heirs. The world we see is not the only world that is. We await an inheritance. An inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We are the people who are naive enough to believe not only in once upon a time, but even in happily ever after. Yes, heirs, but also ninth, guarded. Heaven is kept for you, and you are kept for heaven. By God's power through faith. You will make it to that last day if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so we said that the certainty of what awaits on that great, great, great day transforms the experience of waiting for it. Guarded, yes, and tenth, refined. Love by its nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. And so in our lives difficulties come but their duration is short and God uses them to consume the dross of our lives that we might give our doxology and our worship to him. Ten names, ten labels, ten dimensions, beloved, chosen, exiled, dispersed, blessed, born again, hopeful, heirs, guarded, refined. Ten names, ten labels, ten aspects of our identity to teach us who we are in Christ. And now we finally make it to the end, verses 8 and 9, and the end is joy. Look with me. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation 
of your souls. Let's, let's walk through these words together. First, Peter acknowledges that we have not seen Jesus and we don't see him now. Peter himself did see Jesus as Jesus walked upon this earth in his human body. Jesus, uh, Peter and Jesus ate together and talked together and laughed together and played together and worked together. Uh, Peter even refers in verse 1 of chapter 5 of how he has been a witness to Christ's sufferings. And we ourselves can't say the same thing in the same way. We haven't walked with the earthly Christ as Peter walked with Christ. And yet, Peter says, that does not stop us from loving him or from believing in him. Though you have not seen him, Peter says, you love him. And believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you say yes. I hope that the person and work of Christ has not become boring to you. That you don't find yourself in a place this morning where it has become old news. Because Jesus is not news, he is a person. (laughs) And he is alive and active in your life. And this Jesus who burned at injustice also wept with compassion. And this Jesus is the one who rebuked winds and yet whispered peace. And this Jesus is the one who overturned tables but refused to cast a stone. And then Jesus is the one who bettered his life in his death on our behalf. So that when you hear his name, you ought to be captivated. We're enthralled. We're enchanted. The prophet Isaiah told us that Jesus wasn't very good looking. And yet to us, he's lovely. He's lovely. Peter continues, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This verb to believe simply means to to trust, to rest our confidence in, to depend upon him. It's interesting that it's paired with this preposition, believe in. That's common language to us, but that combination was actually never used before the New Testament. This term believe and believing in something was never used until the New Testament. It carries the nuance of of moving into something as if faith in Christ then finds itself enveloped by Christ. So that as a people, we don't just appreciate Christ from afar. But as we believe in him, we are found in him. That our captivation with him leads to a connection to him. Whereby we don't just love, we believe we are found in him. And the result, Peter says, you see it there, is what? You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The result of being found in Christ, the result of finding your life in him, of your identity being grounded and rooted in the gospel, is that we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So the result isn't a mere happiness, a mere momentary circumstantial elation that can be destroyed by one comment, by one mistake, by one problem with your car, by one difficulty in the office and one argument in your home. Happiness is shallow and will not sustain you. No, the result of a gospel identity is is joy. A settled delight that because Christ is yours and you are his, all is well. 
that eternity and indeed time are safe in his hands, that in him you have everything you need to make it through anything that might ever happen in your life, that he deserves our praise in any and every situation. Peter then intensifies or deepens our understanding of this joy in three ways. Do you see them there in the text? First he says that we rejoice with joy. I love the repetition here. Rejoice with joy. How else would you rejoice? But this term rejoice carries the connotation of shouting because you can't quite keep it in. Presbyterians, this is a good word. (laughs) Look at your call to worship with me again. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy. Old Testament and New were told that Jesus does something in you that shouldn't always be contained. Amen? He did much better than the second service. I said amen and they looked at me. I was kind of like, oh, we have work to do. <laughs> Jesus does something in us that can't always be contained. But Yes, we're not talking about a surface, shallow, superficial happiness. But nor does that mean that gospel joy doesn't find an appropriate emotional response. It engages the affections and and slips out of our mouths as we rejoice with joy. Secondly, our our joy is is magnified and intensified, as, as Peter calls it, inexpressible. Inexpressible. It's a very unusual Greek word that he uses here, and it's actually only used one time in the entire New Testament, right here in our verse. It means unspeakable. It means uh, without words. And he's saying gospel joy is such that it cannot be expressed in human terms. Not because you are unable to express it, but because it cannot be done. Uh, You know, we think of earthly joys and how common it is to to exaggerate and to use hyperbolic language. Your team wins yesterday and you say, that was the best thing ever. Now you're not looking at that victory and your wife and thinking this victory is more important than my wife. You're not looking at that victory and thinking this is more important than my children. You're not thinking, you don't actually think this is the best thing ever. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. It's how we use language. But it's common for us to to exaggerate, to use hyperbolic terms. And here Peter says, gospel joy can't be overstated. It can't be overstated, it can't be exaggerated. There is no hyperbole because the words do not exist to say more than should be said about gospel joy. It's not that we're unable to describe it, it's that it's impossible to do so. So deep is the change that being identified in Christ makes to our lives. Thirdly, our joy is is deepened and intensified because he says it's a joy that's filled with glory. Filled with glory. Many of our earthly joys, we could say, are, are filled with shame. Things we once enjoyed, things we once treasured, that we look back on with embarrassment, perhaps even shame, perhaps even regret. But gospel joy has this weight and substance to it so that as time passes, we just revel in it all the more. It's full of glory. 
We have a joy that causes us to rejoice. It's inexpressible. It's filled with glory. And so, is it any wonder that Peter would be speaking of such joy when we are, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls? Once again, Peter casts our, our, our gaze to the heavens and says, look at eternity. And remember, we are sinners. And yet in Christ, we are saved. Not future tense, not waiting to be, past and present. Are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the one we've never seen. We believe in the one we don't see now. And the result is joy. Here's the point for this morning. Gospel identity isn't just theory and definitions. Gospel identity isn't just words and language. It's not just smoke and mirrors. Embracing who you are in Christ will enable your life to be marked with joy. And so think, Peter tells us, (laughs) the joy you long for and that you pursue in your life through your relationships, through your work, through your spouse, through your kids, through your successes. The thing that you are looking for has already been given to you in the gospel. Everything you long for is already yours in Christ. Joy. Joy. Ours, of course, how? Through the gospel. What is the gospel? Beekner said it was a tragedy, a comedy, and a fairy tale. What does that mean? <laughs> well, the gospel is, yes, a tragedy, because it's bad news before it's good news. The gospel tells us that we are sinners, that the troubles in our lives are not just from without, but from within. That there's evil in the imagination of my heart. That as I look in the mirror, Beekner says, I am at least eight parts chicken phony slob. And so are you. And so are you. Sin is the tragedy. Sin is our tragedy. But then the gospel is also a comedy of sorts. Because it is the good news that the bad news is not the only news. That beyond the bad news, beyond something that is so deep and something so profound, lies something that is deeper and more profound still. That the good news that we are loved. And not just loved, but cherished and forgiven. That as we stand in the mirror with our face in a lather, we don't just bleed, we are also bled for. And it brings a smile to the heart. (laughs) That's comedy. And so the, the comedy of grace turns the tragedy of sin thirdly into fairy tale. What difference would it make if we didn't, worse, couldn't believe the promises of the gospel? Worse yet, if we didn't care? So God invades our lives, and as in a fairy tale, extraordinary things happen as we are transformed. Transformed from what we've been into who we are now in Christ. A gospel identity that's been changed by him. His grace changes everything final sentence of the series in the gospel you have 
a new identity. Beloved, chosen exiles, dispersed but blessed, born again to hope as heirs, guarded even as you're refined. So rejoice with joy. It's inexpressible and filled with glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we look externally to our world, as we look internally to our souls, we recognize that we need something more than happiness. Something more than a smile and a wish. And something that you have given us in the gospel. The result of being found in you. The result of this gospel identity is is joy. Is this weighty, substantive reality. This delight that you are ours and we are yours. And that, Lord, is enough to sustain Enough to sustain through whatever our lives may hold. So thank you for this grace. Thank you for this gospel. We're grateful, even joyful, in Jesus' name. Amen.